0: Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Camp on the strip routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. It's best of week here at WKOK. For Steve, I'm Sean Carey. If you miss any of our live shows, Here on WKOK, we invite you to subscribe to our Steve Jones Show podcast. Just search Steve Jones Show on either iTunes, Google Play, Get those live shows dropped right to your smartphone and tablet. And, of course, you always have access to at least three months of past shows when you go to the podcast archive page at SteveJonesShow.com. So this week, we're going to wrap up the month of June, replay some of the best interviews we've had on the show. Uh, Very football-heavy today. Uh, Last hour, had a chance to uh, replay interviews with Bill Contz from the 82 Penn State National Championship team and newest member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Jerry Kramer. Green Bay Packer legend in the last half hour. So how much Penn State football fans do you know about Beaver Stadium? Well, last year, there was a terrific book that was out just before the holidays called "Layer of the Lion, a history of Beaver Stadium. And we're going to donate and uh, we're, we're going to dial in this whole hour uh, focusing on Beaver Stadium, the whole history and so much more with Steve's conversation with Lee Stout and Harry West, authors of "Layer of the Lion.
1: The Lair of the Lion. Uh, written by Lee Stout and Harry West. And uh, gentlemen, I welcome you to the Sunbury Motor Studio. It's great to have you here. And Harry, uh, what opened the door for you to get interested in a project like this?
2: Well, it all started with uh, a course that I taught on the history of structures. And we started with Stonehenge and went to modern structures, but tucked in there was a lecture on beaver stadium because it's interesting it's big and it has a lot of challenging structural problems and this sort of morphed in then to something student groups wanted and town groups wanted my son said at one point dad you ought to write a book and i said no i don't think anybody's interested in the structure but then lee and i got talking at the gym one day and thought about how we could bring the structural part into the history of of uh, sports venues and penn state planning and so forth and that was the beginning of it
1: well, I believe the place is seven different structures, isn't it?
2: Oh, it's it's glued together in many yeah. ways. I mean,
1: it's, I think it's seven different structures. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey that's a book unto itself, Harry. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, my son said, you know, you're a Brooklyn Dodger fan, Dad. He said, you know, people always write, read things about the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's the same with Beaver Stadium. But yeah. I didn't believe him until I got together with Lee and thought we could put this together in a different way.
1: Well, I'm about ten days away I'm going to the Barclays Center, which is for the Brooklyn Nets play. I'm going to do two games there. What's interesting about that spot is that was the spot that they chose for the new Ebbets Field, and the Brooklyn uh, Council said no. Mm-hmm. So. I always thought that to be interesting. Now they've got this place. Lee, what about your part? Now the history part. This goes back to you with
3: archives for years over at the library. Mm-hmm. So
1: then you brought that part
3: in. Yeah, I uh, when Harry talked to me about the possibility of doing something uh, with the history of stadium and the, of the stadium and how we might expand that. Uh, I immediately thought of all the wonderful books there are about the history of Penn State football, going back to Ridge Riley and Mm -hmm. uh, Rappaport and Lou Prado and all all the many other sports writers that have written about that. And I said, well, gosh, they don't need another one of those from somebody who really doesn't know a lot about Penn State football, other than having watched it since 1965. Uh, But I thought, well, if we could fit the history of the STEM as a venue... Uh, and the and the sport that was played there, and actually multiple sports, mm-hmm. um, into the history of the university, how it fits, and then how the uh, the game has evolved, how the the game at Beaver at Beaver Field and Beaver Stadium has evolved, and how the fans' experience has evolved. That that could make could make an interesting book. Well, Joe Paterno told Rip Engel
1: when they moved Beaver Field over to the east end of campus. That that would be the ruination of Penn State football, as we know it. Yeah. Uh, what turned it into, obviously the winning football was a big part of it, but what turned the venue into an event area as
3: uh, more than just being a football stadium? I think that, uh, that the location, when you quoted Joe as saying this would be the biggest mistake that they ever made for Penn State football. He was talking about the fact that it was being moved out into a pasture. Right, uh, East Halls, for all intents and purposes, didn't even exist at that point. Right. Uh, the Shields building, you know, the kind of central location of all those in, uh, administrative functions didn't exist at that point. Uh, there was pasture and there were some barns and corn cribs and so forth. Uh, but they had the wisdom to see that uh, as... Uh, The attendance was increasing uh, as the uh, number of students and number of alumni were increasing, that more and more people wanted to come see Penn State football. They were improving the road system so people could get here. uh, And they were experiencing something that they didn't have at New Beaver Field, where most people walked to the game. Uh, Now more people were going to drive to the game. They didn't have parking uh, back in the, in the yeah. center of campus for this. So, this would be good not only because they would have an unlimited possibility of expansion uh, if Penn State did well and more and more people wanted to come, but also they'd be able to park a lot of cars there. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, opened up uh, a space for a lot of additional purposes besides uh, football and track. In fact, I can tell
1: everybody, I think Beaver Stadium with the Big Ten easily has the best parking situation even now with 110,000 seats. The uh, jacking up of the seats, taking out the track, jacking up of the seats, putting the concrete in at the bottom. Harry, structurally, how innovative was that plan to do that back in, what, 76-77?
2: Very innovative. In fact, it, it had never been done before. Nothing like that's ever been done since. And uh, that was by far the most challenging um, expansion because they couldn't begin it until the end of the 77th season. They had to have it finished by the beginning of the 78th season. And it's a mammoth undertaking. And uh, I went to Harrisburg and interviewed um, the gentleman who was the foreman of the job at the time. And he said it was the most challenging job he ever had. They had a strike on campus, which kept his workers out. They had bad weather. And he said they were putting the hardware in the locker room doors the night before the first game. Mm -hmm. But he said it was by far the most challenging problem he ever had. Who came
1: up with that idea? I mean, you're sitting there, the tracks there. Now, today, what they do today is, like, take Ohio State, Michigan State. They've lowered the field. They've Mm -hmm. taken the track out, they've lowered the field, and that's how they've done that. They didn't do this here. Who came up with the idea of, like, let's uh, jack it up a section at a time and then build it?
2: Well, I'm, I'm not sure who came up with the idea. I know that the Baker was, uh, Michael Baker Farm yeah. was the one then. They they actually thought about lowering the field as one of the possibilities, but were concerned about drainage problems and things of that nature. But uh, uh, Clarence Knudsen, who was a person with uh, Michael Baker at the time, said it was the only time it had ever been done. And I think the, who actually gets credit for originating the idea, I don't know. But it was certainly novel. Well, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. It really is. I
1: mean, I mean that, that was done 40 years ago. Yes. I mean, my goodness, 40 years, and it's it stood the test of time. What did you find out in this, Lee, that you didn't know
3: before? I would say the um, – I knew about the moves uh, from old Beaver Field to new Beaver Field to Beaver Stadium. Uh, one of the things that really struck me when we were first talking about – uh, the move from New Beaver Field to Beaver Stadium, I knew they had taken the grandstands apart and trucked them out there. Uh, but what it, what I sort of never noticed was that they had built, what, 16,000 new seats. Yeah. But they were up in the air, and the old grandstands were fit in below them. And I remember first time seeing a picture of all these stands up in the air and thinking, wait a minute, what? What's going on there? And that's when it struck me that uh, you know even this was an innovative idea. And if it hadn't been for the type of grandstand uh, that had been used beginning in 1934 when they started to switch over to steel from wood, uh, it would have been impossible. I was just at the Ohio State game and a fair amount of time looking at the at the grandstand and construction, and it's pretty much all concrete. Yeah. Um, Penn State had actually talked about that uh, beginning in the nineteen thirties of building a permanent stadium about where the bus station is today, right. uh, and uh, uh, eventually abandoned it. They couldn't afford it in the thirties, and they didn't have time to think about it in the forties. But by the time the fifties came along, they'd already expanded. New Beaver Field in 1949 to a horseshoe, right. and at that point they realized they couldn't expand it anymore. It just the wouldn't wouldn't fit, right. uh, and uh, so moving in '59 was really the only option they had. Uh, and they it would have been much more difficult, much more expensive, if they hadn't had the kind of steel stands that they did. Right. Uh, I th- when it rained,
1: you can see the thirty thousand seats. Yeah, I've yeah. been in there. I, as you know, I've been in there more than most people have. <laughs> yeah. Scrimmages, things like that. And if you sit in the press box and it rains, you can see where the thirty thousand seats are. Just enough mm-hmm. coloration difference mm-hmm. where you can see where it is. It's interesting. Yes. Very interesting.
2: Some of the images that you catch over the years are interesting when you see they replaced the wood benches with aluminum. Yeah, that took place over about a ten-year period, mm-hmm. and um, some of the images show brown and. Aluminum colors you know at different sections of the stadium
1: uh how challenging was it to uh, putting the scoreboards on there I, no, I'll, let me let me let me step back one second. How challenging was it to fix the north deck once that was built because there were cracks in the concrete at, at,
2: well it was very challenging i mean that uh, of the twelve um, concrete vents that radiate out eight of them had cracks.
1: Right, and this is a cantilever deck, so it's not attached to the That's rest right. of the stadium.
2: That's right. It's not attached in any way. It's it's anchored on this large, on these large uh, re- reinforced concrete vents, and the cracks were at the interface between the corbels, which supported the pedestrian rampway, and the, uh, and the frame itself. And, uh, you know, there were all kinds of arguments about whether the forms were over- taken off too early or inadequately reinforced and so forth, but Again, they looked at several possibilities, and the one they came up with was this post-tensioning, which basically closed the cracks and prevented additional cracks from developing. And um, timing was a big problem because they already had 10,000 seats sold for the Cincinnati game. But um, it was a very challenging thing, and I I think the solution is a a good solution. It's a little bit uh, unattractive and raises a lot of questions, but it's very effective.
1: Harry, the stadium's in seven parts. There's a lot of parts of it. (laughs) (laughs) it,
2: Yeah, it doesn't... It's not an attractive structure. Yeah.
3: No. Uh, Although people will challenge you when you say that. Oh, yeah. The real fans think it's, oh, it's, it's, it's look, beautiful. It's, it's our wonderful. place. Yeah.
1: This well, is our place. What the heck? You know? Inside, it looks beautiful. Absolutely. And it has 110,000 students. Absolutely. When, yeah. when one guy's going 69 yards for a touchdown in the second play of the game, it looks awesome. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> uh, Lee track the success of Penn State football with with the size of the stadium. I mean, does one dovetail the other in your opinion?
3: Uh, actually, pretty much it does. I think uh, I like to go back to the to the beginnings of Penn State football. Maybe because maybe because there's nobody alive to on, contradict on me on the lawn, <laughs> <laughs> on the lawn with and, Bucknell on the lawn. But uh, you know, by 1893, they had a they had a football field and a grandstand about 500 seats, maybe something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they did have showers though. They brought water down from Ag Hill and ah, set up showers in under nice. the grandstand. So you know, all the comforts. Of That you would want. But, uh, uh, you know, by that point, they were at that point, they were playing teams like Bucknell and Dickinson. Uh, As success increased, they began to play uh, more regional opponents. They eventually began to play uh, Army and Navy. uh, And uh, and, and 19, then got 19, into. 1812 went out to Ohio State and Ohio mm-hmm. State quit. Yeah. And uh, they got into uh, playing the Ivy League schools, which was the right. SEC of its day. Right. Uh, it's, they were the national champions repeatedly. They had most of the All American players, so Harvard, Yale, Penn, and Princeton. Uh, were the you know, they were the big opponents. If Penn State could tie Harvard, mm-hmm. uh, it was uh, it was you know reason for a major celebration. Right. Uh, but uh, uh, as as the team improved, uh, the stadium, uh, the number of people who wanted to come in, increased, they added more and more wooden grandstands. Now the big change came in nineteen thirty when President Hetzel decided they were going to de-emphasize right. Football. Yeah, people realize in the 30s, when you look at the records, like, wow, the records weren't very yeah, right good. what happened? There's n- because nine straight losing seasons. They said they de-emphasized football. Yeah, and uh, and it, it wasn't just, uh, um, you know, the the number of seats decreased because they they took down some of the wooden stands. They began to build steel, but very slowly, uh, you know, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 seats at a, uh, a year uh, but they were playing fewer games, they were playing lesser opponents, and they weren't having very much success. Uh, by 1939, 1940, 41, they were being able to turn it around, but then the war came in, messed everything up, and it yeah. wasn't until the veterans started to come back, and you had that 47 team that went yeah. to the Cotton Bowl, right. that was really kind of the turning point. Uh, from that point on, things began to, to improve. Right,
2: But I think the expansion of Beaver Stadium can be pretty easily traced with the s- success. I think it was really right. hand in glove.
1: Right. Yeah, I agree. The hand, because there's more demand. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. More people want to go and see it.
3: Where have your respective seats been over the years, and how often have you changed, if at all? Well, I, I mean, starting as a student, um, back when Beaver Stadium was a horseshoe, um we sat pretty close to the the uh the you know the round part of the horseshoe yeah. um that was where the freshmen sat and then gradually as you you know you went up you moved up a section each yeah. year um, after, you know, when I was a grad student and, uh, and early faculty member, we, you know, we'd, we'd scavenge and get seats wherever we could. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually they weren't very good. When I really began to buy season tickets, we were very fortunate. We had friends who had tickets that they shared with us and am mm-hmm. sitting on the 45-yard line and mm-hmm. that was really nice. Yeah. Uh, and then recently I've been sitting in the Sat in the end, in the north end zone for a while. We were but we were under the deck, so we were dry and brilliant games. And, <laughs> but now we're in uh, W uh, H. So oh, very nice. What about you, Herb?
2: Well, as a student, my first game here was in nineteen fifty three when they had the snowstorm. Oh, okay. I came from New Jersey with uh, as a senior in high school, and that was my first game, the nineteen fifty three Fordham game. <laughs> and uh, then as a student, of course, uh, my years were entirely at. At beaver Field, and uh I've never had season tickets, really. I, I go to games- uh on occasion as i can, and today at age- age eighty one I spend my game in front of a flat screen
1: ah <laughs> i'm not that's very comfortable yeah, yeah it is
2: i I don't like to admit that, but that's the case. (laughs) Nothing
1: wrong with that. You paid your dues. (laughs) Okay, you paid your dues. Saturday's gonna be twenty (laughs) six. So enjoy
3: your flat screen. Please don't say that. (laughs) Oh, it gets warmer during the game. They need two layers of long underwear.
1: (laughs) No wind. Oh, it's okay. When I did the Ohio State game, it was what, thirty four there? There's no heat in the booth. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's great. <laughs> I'm enjoying this. It's a lot of fun. I mentioned the scoreboard before. They've had, obviously, variations of it. There was one, the standalone scoreboard that was there in the late 60s into the early 70s till an expansion. Then, obviously, the uh, more intricate boards have been put up, and now you get the video boards. Any challenge in putting those up based on the structure?
2: Well, the big challenge, they did that in the uh, 99-2001 expansion. Yeah. The one on the north deck is separately supported. It's not supported mm. on the deck itself. They actually had to weave a supporting structure up through the exist under the under the uh, the uh, pedestrian rampway yeah. to support that because the the deck wasn't designed to support it.
1: Are any uh, of the seats attached here? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then, then of course, when the when the south expansion was done, right. they. They designed it from the beginning to support the scoreboard. But right. They, I mean,
1: that's a building. That's a building. I mean, build-in, I mean yeah. that is a building. Yeah. I mean, the South End. So.
2: Oh, it is. In yeah. fact, we one of our chapters in the in the book is when Beaver Stadium became a building. Yeah. And because uh, just talk to Bobby White. Yeah. And you'll find out that the, this he's saying that nothing else happens there but seven games a year <laughs> he can contradict that in a hurry
1: Right, absolutely and it's also, it's also changed the game a bit by having it there because as you, as all of us know before the building was put up on the south end this was a north to south wind all the time mm-hmm. and uh, I remember 1978 uh, Penn State kicked off to start the game because Pitt, uh, Pitt wanted to receive and Penn State had the option in the second half and Joe kicked off again because of the wind. He knew Pitt couldn't move. They won the game. He knew they could not throw the ball into the wind. He kicked off twice in the game. That
3: may be unprecedented.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It might be, but some knucklehead remembers it. Yeah. Uh, We're joined by Lee Stout and Harry West, Dr. Harry West. And they... Collaborated on the book Lair of the Lion. This is really the story and the history of Beaver Stadium, which, of course, we've all loved and enjoyed for decades. So I'm going back to when it was Beaver Field, and a lot of this as to what Lee has been able to uncover it dates back to the early days. There's a lot of Penn State football history in this book, and Harry, of course, doing a brilliant job on... The uh, the engineering part of it, because we've always kidded about it being an Erector set. Well, it is. It's separate parts, sort of connected. All right, coming up, more with Lee Stout and Dr. Harry West. We're brought to you by Sunbury Motors, Fourth Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Key Eleven and Fifteen in Hummel's Warp on News Radio Ten Seventy WKOK.
0: Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now, from the Sunbury Motor Studio, here's Steve Jones.
1: Very pleased to be joined here in the Sunbury Motor Studio by Lee Stout and Dr. Harry West, who co wrote Lair of the Lion. Uh, first half hour of course fascinating enjoyed it we're keeping them for the entire hour i'll start with harry then we'll go to you lee when it comes to this and uh, of course all this is brought to you by sunbury motors 4th street in sunbury sunbury motors kia Routes 11 and 15 in hummel's wharf and that deals with sourcing how deep did the rolodex get and who are some of the key individuals that really opened the door for what we're able to read in this book
2: well, when I was developing the course, Herb Schmidt was still the Associate yeah. Athletic Director, and he was a good friend, and and he provided a lot of material. In fact, um, many of the images that I have, I got from Herb. I went up there, and he gave me a plastic bag with uh, slides, and I was able to select the images that I wanted. And Herb has always been a great source, because he, he grew up with it. He knew everything about it. And then, of course, there were other people along the way, too, That, but uh, Herb would be the one that I would... And then we checked with the construction people and the physical plant people. And uh, I was amazed to find in physical plant. I could go back and get the drawings for the 1934 Lambert Grandstand. It was the first steel structure that was uh, wow. in the old, in the new Beaver Field location. Wow. And uh, I was able to trace that whole development and the expansion in the uh, various years in the 30s and then the, the addition of the horseshoe in, in 49 Which, in addition to the horseshoe, they extended the the, uh, grandstand in the southerly direction, 72 feet beyond the end zones. So um, all of that was available through physical plant for the um, drawings that they had archived there.
1: What about you, Lee? In terms of sourcing,
3: well, uh, my sources were, you know, largely the archives. Right. Uh, having spent you, you have twenty, you, do you have access there, Lee. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I, I uh, I'm a, I'm a I'm a researcher today. Yes. I, I'm I'm uh, not allowed behind the scenes, but yeah. uh, it was uh, uh, I'd known from you know from years of of helping other people do research, right. including Ron Smith, who was yeah. you know a frequent visitor to the mm-hmm. archives. Uh, that, uh, uh, you know, we had a lot of photographs. We had all of the uh, programs going back to the 1920s, to the Beaver Field Pictorials, as they were called then, the alumni magazines, the media guides going back to the late 50s. So there was lots and lots of source material uh, available that way. Um, Over the years, we, at one point back in the 1980s, I think, we... Um, acquired um, the uh, negative collection of the old Bob Breon Penn State Photoshop, and right. he uh, had served not only as the photographer for uh, Levy but also as kind of the college's unofficial photographer. And he had uh, put together, um, you know, an enormous archive, and they were mostly negatives. So we we printed a, a lot of them, and then we had a committee of uh, of guys come in and spend afternoons. Uh, identifying these pictures and and in our acknowledgements, uh, you know, I'm talking about people like uh, Tiny McMahon and Jack Sherry and uh, uh, a variety of other people, Carl Stravinsky, Old Letterman, uh, and veterans uh, who would come in and help us identify who the who the individuals were, who the players and and coaches were. Uh, and I got over the years, I got to interview a variety of people, including. Uh, uh, Rosie Greer and uh, talked to, to Wally Triplett. Charlie Way was probably yeah. the most interesting person because Back to 1920, know, yeah, because he had, uh, you know, he had come in. He was so small that Coach yeah. Besdek didn't even want to let him play. Right. Uh, and finally, uh, you know, they had a back who was hurt, and they had to put Charlie Way in. And he scored, I think, three touchdowns in his first yeah. game. And after that, his nickname was Gangway because yeah. uh, he could go. Uh, and he also talked about playing professional football, he played for the Pottstown Maroons yeah. and and a few other teams where he got uh, paid like $50 for a game or something right. like that. And, uh uh, but he was you know he he talked about playing football at Penn State in the nineteen twenties and it was just an amazing thing so those mm-hmm. are the you know and of course i've i 've known many of the administrators uh in athletics we became the archives for sports information and had all of their right. back files and back photo files and uh also um when TCS was doing the uh, the television, we ended up with all of their video. So uh, there was quite a lot of material to work with. Yeah, last time I talked to Charlie Way, was in Cincinnati
1: many years ago. Yeah. He was fascinating. That was. Fascinating. I think, boy, Harry Lighthorse Wilson was on that mm-hmm. team with him. Yeah. yeah. Back in that era. Dexter Very
3: maybe, close to that area era. Yeah, about that. And I think Charlie Way missed out on being the uh, All-American back that year. There was a guy named uh, yeah. oh, uh, George Gipp, I yes. think, who got yes. the designation got as the All-American back and shut out Charlie Way. It could have been Ronald Reagan playing yeah. the Charlie Way story. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> playing the Charlie Way story. Well, uh, and then Jack Sherry not only played football, but he was on the Final Four basketball team in '54. Right, with Jesse Arnell. With Jesse Arnell, Yeah. The two of them both. Well, because a lot of guys doubled up back in that era playing mm-hmm. both football and mm-hmm. basketball during yeah. that particular time. You have to take a break? Well, then we'll take a break. Um, I'm going to keep you guys around a little bit longer. Sure. You know? Okay. That's- I Harry charges by the hour anyway. No, he's got a. He has a professional uh, fee structure. I just do it. <laughs> <laughs> you just do it for the fun, yeah, Lee. Yeah. <laughs> Lee Stout, Harry West, joining us. The book Lair of the Lion, uh, talking about Beaver Stadium not only as a center of events, because, I mean, Penn State football is more than a game, it's an event, and also as a structure, which is remarkable. The track was in there for a long time, as, as uh, Harry pointed out earlier, they took that out to then put the stands in there, but just talk about the, the fact that the track was in there and the, the various events that were in there over time.
2: Well, if you look at the uh, overhead view of New Beaver Field, you can see all the various mm. you know pits and so forth for various um, track events, and those were carried over to the, to the stadium when it moved there. And uh, it continued to be a duel. And in fact, when they put the temporary bleachers on this, the um, the south end, when they they would take them out in the off season because they were wood. But when they put in a light steel, they actually could run under it yeah. for a period of time. And then when they in nineteen eighty, I think it was, when they put in the or maybe seventy six, when they put in the the permanent steel bleachers, that's when they had to go to a new track facility. But it was where all the track events were for many many years. And even even the original Beaver Field uh, behind where the uh, Osmond Lab is today, that was originally for track and baseball and, and tennis and all that was part of that facility.
1: Also, way ahead of the curve when they did the expansion in the 80s uh, was to put permanent lights in. Today, I still go to stadiums, and if there's a night game... Some have permanent lights, others need, quote, must lighting, which they, they truck in. What did that mean to the growth of the
3: program? The, and, and also with an idea to the TV early that they, they have permanent lights. I think it made a tremendous difference. There was a couple years where they brought in temporary lights yep. for the occasional night game, but after the NCAA lost the antitrust uh, case in. What was that, about 84, I think. 84, Oklahoma, Georgia. I mean, yeah, that just broke open the whole opportunity for uh, for TV uh, beyond what the N- NCAA had controlled when Penn State might get one TV game a year, possibly right. two. Uh, and it made it possible for uh, things eventually like the Big Ten Network, uh, for Notre Dame to have its own network. Mm-hmm. Um, Penn State had delayed television uh in a small network, sort of uh, run through uh, TCS in Pittsburgh. Um, Nelson Goldberg. Yeah, Nelson Goldberg. And uh, uh, it just really opened everything up. So, you know, with lights came increased opportunities for broadcasting and increased opportunities for uh, night games or at least lighting up the stadium for a late afternoon game when it gets really dreary, as it often does here in Happy Valley.
1: I wouldn't tell James Franklin that.
3: Uh, I'm just speaking (laughs) weather-wise.
1: But uh, this is where Joe Paterno, being on the College Football Association committee, working hand-in-hand with Chuck Ninus, paid great dividends for Penn State because he was there. Because people don't realize that before the Oklahoma-Georgia thing broke, the CFA actually put together a contract with the NBC, which I think opened the door to, like, hey, look, we got to challenge this because the NCAA didn't want it. And that he understood they needed to put lights in because he saw the TV thing taking off. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what, what it came down to. Um, I, asked, I asked before anything that surprised you along the way, what was the most interesting story you feel like you told in this story that really captured your interest more than anything else?
3: Um, I guess I'd probably go back to the early days. Um, really? Yeah. I, I, I just I think people in general don't appreciate, and I don't really think that I had appreciated all that much how much football was a true student activity then. Right. Uh, the faculty and administration uh, almost completely hands off. It was the students through their athletic association, which started eighteen eighty seven eighty eight. Uh, that began to field teams in various sports, uh, the two people who were really in charge was the captain mm-hmm. of the f- of the team of the you know of penn state's eleven for for football. He was the one who selected the players, he called the plays he uh, did oversee some of the training and practices, and then the manager I mean today we think of managers as these poor guys that are cleaning uniforms and. Right. You know prying the the turf out of uh, face masks, but in those days the manager was was just as important as the captain because it was the manager uh who handled the money and who mm-hmm. arranged away games and who provide and who went around panhandling to get the money to provide a guarantee to for teams to come here and in those days, it was really hard to get a team to come here because it was so isolated. Yeah, uh, there were the, season. you had to
1: take the train to Lewistown and come in from
3: there, right? Uh actually in the in the 1887 okay. you could take a train right to State College. Okay. Uh but nevertheless, but it was a, do that now. It was a long <laughs> it was an hour trip just to get from Belfont to State College right. by train. In so, fact,
2: there's one game against Pitt that was played in Belfont.
3: Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes, because it was hard to get from Belfont to State College. So yeah. they played it up there.
3: Yeah. I, in those early seasons, there might only be one or two home games in a season, and the rest would be away games, or there would be games played in a neutral field. A lot of schools in those days liked to have a game in, in a city because yeah. they could really attract a big crowd then. Uh, and Ivy League schools, especially, you know, they'd play at the polo grounds in New York, and they would have mm-hmm. 25,000, 30,000, 40,000 people attend a game.
1: Right. And Penn State forever when they played Pitt would be playing at Forbes Field over and over.
3: Yep.
2: One of the big surprises for me was in the early steel structure. Okay. In the archives that I found at the physical plant was that there was a patented grandstand, a Lambert Mm -hmm. grandstand. It was actually patented by the head of civil engineering at the University of Iowa. Mm -hmm. And you could piece these things together both horizontally and vertically because it's, it's not like the typical bleachers where you can fall through or drop things through. Right. And uh, in all the subsequent additions to the stadium um, in at the new Beaver Field location, they were all credited to uh, this patent that was the, the so-called Lambert Grandstand. And it wasn't until the new expansion came when they didn't have to patent that anymore, but they copied that style hmm. a, in in the uh, addition of the 16,000 seats when they expanded to the new location. Right, And it wasn't until that the the north wing was put in that they followed the same idea, but they, didn't, they no longer had the same kind of uh, patching together piece by piece.
1: Uh, it's down the road, years down the road, and the design certainly has an opportunity to change and so forth based on, on what is at the moment. But I assume the two of you took a, at least a look at the model of what it could look like down the road. What did the two of you think of that when you saw that uh, this past summer?
2: Well, I was a little surprised when I, of course, there was this all this publicity about renovate versus mm-hmm. uh, re- restore, and um, but to a large extent, it's it's uh, it's not renovation; it's replacement in place mm-hmm. because uh, three fourths of the stadium, at least the way it was presented at the meeting, will be replaced over time. Right. And um, one of the things that I was kind of unaware of is the fact that, you know, you see on the east and west side, now you see some uh, chairs, back chairs. Right, yeah, they replaced those, yeah. They replaced. And um, But when I examined that closely, they changed the tread for those seats because the, the existing stadium only has, I think, 27-inch tread. Right. And you need 33 inches to have s- seats. And I didn't realize that they actually changed the decking so that they could put I those that. seats in because they have the space that you need there. But it would not be possible to replace throughout the entire stadium right. because you don't have the tread length that you need. I was a little surprised that the the plan calls for taking down the east suites. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the only thing that would be retained would be the southern part of the structure mm. and the the east, west, and north would be replaced one section at a time. And that would include taking down the... The elevated three-story building, which is the the luxury suites now, right? But uh, that seems to be. Of course, it's five years down the road. A lot of things right. can sure. happen. It, that, that was my it's point. Just, in the question is conceptual did at this point, right? But, but uh, that seems to be the direction that they're taking.
1: Right. That was the point I made. in The question is, that, look, it can all change. I mean, but it's just a, at least a starting point. What did mm-hmm. you
3: think? I, I well, when they first you know talked about starting this uh, master planning study. Uh, And they said, well, we're going to look at the renovation or replacement of Mm -hmm. Beaver Stadium. And that's the first time anybody had ever talked about replacing Beaver Stadium. And, of course, Mm -hmm. it was like a volcanic eruption (laughs) among alumni. Like, my gosh, you can't replace Beaver Stadium. Yeah, I
1: do a dozen speaking engagements every year. i
3: got to. <laughs> yeah, you heard about it. I'm I, I sure. may have heard it once yeah. or twice. Yeah, yeah it's but uh, you know immediately we began to think of well you know a where would you put it because you couldn't tear down Beaver Stadium and build a new one in right. between two seasons, right. uh, and um, you know if you could resolve that, um, you now how much would it cost? And of course, new stadiums in uh, in cities for professional football, baseball, uh, are you know they're not just. 400000000 They're million, you're up in the billion-dollar range. Yeah, Yankee and, Stadium
1: when Penn State played the pinstripe yeah. balls is a $1.5 billion yeah. dollar structure. And
3: uh, those can't be built without uh, enormous amounts of uh, mm-hmm. local government investment and bonds and right. so forth. Yeah, Penn State's not going to get that. Uh, yeah. And so uh, tremendous reliance on... Uh, uh, not just gate receipts, but uh, boxes and dogs and what have and yeah. parking. Uh, it's going to take a tremendous amount of rev- of uh, fundraising.
1: Other stadiums that the two of you have been to, which ones have fascinated you? that besides here, other places you've been to. You went. Hmm. What about you, Harry? Um, Lee, I mean.
3: Well, I, I'm. I have been to Ippets Field, Ooh. and that was uh, that was uh, that was fifty five. You know, Snyder, Pee Wee Reese, Roy Campanella. All right. They won I, the World Series I that year. That's exactly right. <laughs> that to my father, who was a Yankees fan, yeah. uh, but that was uh, was a, um, you know, I think I've been to uh, me um, mm-hmm. the you know the 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 stadiums like uh, Three Rivers Stadium, Busch Stadium, Diego, Ro- Giant multi-purpose bowls yeah. that. Uh, uh, You know, were uh, indistinguishable and undistinguished, Uh, Mm -hmm. and so uh, Ohio Stadium uh, was was a very interesting. I I don't go to a lot of bowl games or away games, uh, but uh, I thought that was really pretty fascinating.
2: Was at Ebbets Field in nineteen forty seven with Jackie Robinson. Wow, and I was a kid then, you know, ten or eleven years old. Experience. One of the worst experiences I had was at Fenway Park sitting behind them.
1: Yeah, they, they still exist, Harry. They, yeah. they do. I've probably been to 50 to 100 games at Fenway Park. <laughs> I, I've yeah. been behind but, every column.
2: <laughs> I did graduate work at the University of Illinois, and that's uh, yeah. you know that's a classic Memorial Stadium. Yes, and, it is. And, I mean, it's it's old, but it's it's classic, and it uh, they've, they've renovated it a good bit now. But mm-hmm. when I was there as a student, I was impressed with that back in the 60s.
1: Well, we're impressed by the book, Lair of the Lime. Uh, great gift for the holidays coming up, by the way. Lee, Harry, thank you so much for being with us. I enjoyed this thoroughly. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. What a fascinating hour. An absolutely fascinating hour. I think I could have gone... Two more hours with these guys. Harry Lee, thanks so much. Appreciate it very, very much. Uh, Joining us here in the Sunbury Motors studio, Sunbury Motors 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors Key Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Again, the book is Lair of the Lion, and it's more than just uh, the history of Beaver Stadium. A lot of it's intertwined with the history of Penn State football and the history of Penn State itself. We'll see what it's going to be like down the road as to what Beaver Stadium is going to look like, say, 10 years from now. Lair of the Lion, leased out in Dr. Harry West.
0: Here's Adam Purdy with another example of how Purdy Insurance is different. I was at home one Saturday when I got a call from a client who had just been in an auto accident with a rental car in Canada. After confirming that everyone was okay, I checked his policy and assured him that we had the proper coverages in place. Within a few minutes, I had his claim called in and he was back to enjoying his vacation. Purdy Insurance has been answering calls like this for over 90 years. Give Purdy Insurance a call today at 800-677-2478 to see what we can do for you.